Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This morning we're looking at verses 42 through 52. 42 through 52. Acts 13. Please listen this morning to the reading of God's word. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Cornelia Arnolda Johanna Ten Boom, also known as Corrie Ten Boom, was a Dutch woman who helped Jewish people escape the hands of the Nazis during the Holocaust in World War II. Her method was to provide a hiding place for them in her home. Risky business. Even a small snippet of her life during this time can give you the sense of chaos. Chaos, which is not hard to envision, especially during times of war, cruelty, and suffering. Not surprisingly, it was during this time in Corrie Ten Boom's life that she wrote a poem known as the Master Weaver's plan. Consider what she said, and I quote from the poem, quote, my life is but a weaving, weaving between God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves steadily. Oftentimes he weaves sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I only the underside. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned, end quote. Do you see the picture? She's conveying the idea of a tapestry. A tapestry is a work of art in which threads are skillfully woven and stitched together on a heavy textile in order to form a picture. The detail, the intricacy is really awe-inspired. Some of these are considered to be classics of the arts and for very good reason. 
But the point of the tapestry as used by Corey Ten Boom in her poem was to illustrate something of a mystery. What is that mystery? The mystery is this. Underneath the beauty of the upper side of the tapestry looks like pure chaos. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Corey Ten Boom was surrounded by chaos manifested primarily through Nazi cruelty, anxiety concerning the unknown, some victories, but also death and many other forms of suffering. Her life from where she was standing did not look like a beautiful tapestry, but more like the underside of one where you can see all the threats, but they don't make a lot of sense. The underside was so chaotic, she couldn't even see or tell what was on the upper side. And that's the point. A tapestry is beautiful when appreciated from the upper side. The underside is often a big mess, like life. But the big mess, the chaos of life, when in the hands of a master weaver is actually yielding something beautiful, something only visible to the weaver and to the eyes of faith. And this is the sense of our passage this morning. It seems, it feels like pure chaos. There is faith, there is progress mixed in with serious opposition and fierce persecution. But we're also given a glimpse into the upper side where the tapestry actually looks beautiful. And that short glimpse of the tapestry above helps us make sense of the underside here below. And what is that underside? This is our first point, if you're following along in the notes. The earthly chaos. The earthly chaos, which we get from verses 42 through 45 and 50. And where does it come from? Human action human action. Am I the only one who thinks of life in this world as chaotic sometimes? Am I alone in that? Let's consider some of the context, but let's read those passages. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken to you first. Notice verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women and of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Now, let's consider a little bit of the context leading up to this point. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, taking the gospel to many different parts of the world. According to verse 14, they are in a city called Antioch, located in the region of Pisidia. While in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas entered a Jewish synagogue, and Paul preached the gospel to the Jewish people, to his audience, which is recorded for us in verses 16 through 41. In that sermon, Paul spoke of Jesus as the promised Messiah who came from the line of David as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This Jesus, the Bible says, Paul said, died on the cross, 
was subsequently placed in a tomb, meaning he really, really died, but God raised him from the dead. The very body of Jesus came out of the tomb renewed. And now through Jesus, who died and who also lives forever, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. That was Paul's sermon inside the Jewish synagogue. He was calling his audience to believe in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And that is the same call that has gone forth from faithful pulpits all over the world ever since. And it is the same call that is going forth from this pulpit today. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then today is the day of salvation. Trust in the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins. Believe that he rose again from the dead. And the Bible promises you, you will be saved. This is the message of salvation. It hasn't changed. We received it from the apostles. We now give it to you. But in verse 42, the scene changes. While in verse 41, everyone is inside the synagogue listening to Paul's sermon in verse 41, Luke says, they went out of the synagogue, and this is where we see the chaos. This is where the chaos begins. Luke, Luke explains this chaos by pointing out four different responses to what Paul said in his sermon. The first response is receptive listening. Verses 42 and 43, as they went out, the people begged that these things about the gospel about Jesus might be told them next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So some people left the synagogue having heard the message of Paul with a very heavy interest in what he had to say. So much so that from the standpoint of Paul and Barnabas, these people needed to be encouraged to continue in the faith. So we don't know for certain if these people became actual believers in Christ, but they seem to have been quite receptive to Paul's message. The second response is widespread curiosity. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Again, this is chaos. Luke emphasizes this by pointing out the amount of people who came to hear Paul the next Sabbath, a week later, almost the whole city. Luke is intentionally putting a picture of tumultuous disorder in our minds. There is a lot going on. Paul and Barnabas are creating quite the stir and almost the entire city of Antioch is into this. They're interested in what they have to say. This is a big commotion. But even though this is chaos, if you notice the passage, it has remained somewhat positive. People are generally interested in what Paul and Barnabas are saying. There is a drastic change, however, in verse 45, which comes to a boiling point in verse 50. So here is the third response to Paul's gospel. Jealous opposition. Jealous opposition. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw that the, cr the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. 
Now we are introduced to the ones who did not appreciate what was happening. These are the ones who resented both the message of Paul and Barnabas and also the popularity that they were getting among the people. Who are these Jews? We don't know for certain, but following the context of Acts is more than likely the leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees that were against them. They felt they were losing their grip on their authority among the people, and we know that their main desire was to be people of authority. And so they felt threatened by Paul and Barnabas. And so they created even more chaos by opposing their message, reviling Paul personally, and finally convincing others to persecute them by driving them away from the city of Antioch altogether. Do you sense the chaos? There's a lot going on here. I certainly do sense the chaos, and I hope you do. Not only do I feel the, the chaos in the text, but I have personally felt it myself, maybe not to this extent, but quite severely. I remember standing in front of a congregation once. I was the pastor, and I was conducting a members meeting in which I was getting ready to propose a few changes, which I thought were scriptural, and just, just to make things clear, it was not this church, okay? It was not this church. Thank goodness for that. I had preached 18 sermons leading up to this members' meeting in hopes to make my case as strongly as I could from the Bible. 18 messages leading up to this. Long story short, the meeting was pure chaos. It turned out to be the, my last meeting as the pastor of that church. Unbeknownst to me, something had been brewing for quite some time against me at the church. There was a group of men who not only didn't appreciate my ministry there, they despised it, especially my preaching. And so for several weeks, these men, all deacons of the church, met secretly to plot against me. Their ultimate goal, their ultimate end was to have me removed from the church altogether, driven out of town, if you would, and by the way, this is the same church where the chairman of the deacons once told me that I was paying too much attention to the Bible. That gives you a clue as to who they truly were. But the time, by the time we had the members meeting, they had done much planning and had recruited many, many people. Just to give you some perspective, a normal members meeting at that church gather about 30 to 40 people. During this particular meeting, the building was packed like I had never seen it before. There were people in there that I had never seen in the two years that I served at that church. In their secret plotting, these men had spread the word and called for reinforcements. This is a true story. While they were busy doing this, others truly appreciated my ministry. In particular, my preaching and my teaching. They sincerely loved my family. They sincerely loved the truth. So that meeting was chaos. Chaos. And visibly so. On the one hand, there were false witnesses. Literally, brothers and sisters, I'm not making this up. There were false witnesses standing up publicly saying all kinds of false accusations against me publicly. 
On the other hand, there were people shedding actual tears during the meeting because they knew this was all staged and that this meant my likely departure from the church. It was a truly, truly sad day. A true display of the chaos that humans can create through their actions. You know what this was? This was the underside of the tapestry. My life felt quite chaotic during this time, the last few months at that church. There was so much stress, confusion, combined with joys and victories. I experienced everything in that church. Only pastors who have preached in similar contexts can actually understand what I'm saying, how difficult this is. So consider this point with me. I preached the exact same message to everyone in the audience. Some loved it and were changed by it. Others hated it and took measures against it. And this is what we see in our text. Some were receptive to Paul's message. Others were curious, yet others hated it and took measures against it. But there is a fourth response to Paul's gospel. Did you see it? And that fourth response is true faith. The Gentiles believed according to verse 48. You know what that verse is? That verse gives us the, the tapestry. The beauty above the chaos. But before we see it in more detail, and before we ask why did some believe and others didn't, let us give a brief attention to how Paul defended himself in response to the attacks from the Jewish leaders. Here Paul reveals the apostolic conviction. The apostolic conviction, verses 46 through 47. And what is that, the apostolic conviction? Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. Verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In these two verses, Paul explains the instrumentality of salvation, which is this, what Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing the word of the Lord. There cannot be any salvation apart from the gospel of Jesus preached and heard so that it might be believed upon. The instrumentality through which salvation goes to the ends of the earth is a spoken message that must be heard. As Paul said, the word of God must be, must be spoken first. But notice also with me the human aspect in all of this. Paul confronts his opponents with these words. You are rejecting the word and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Did you see that? It's very human. You are bringing this upon yourselves. You must believe this message. You must trust in Jesus. You must, you must. Paul is laying the blame and the responsibility on them, on his hearers, on the Jews. So Paul says, because of your stubbornness, your unwillingness, your rebellious heart, we are turning to the Gentiles, meaning we are now going to take the message of the gospel of salvation to those outside of the Jewish religion. We're going to the ends of the earth. Why? Because that was the original plan anyway, as revealed in the quotation from Isaiah chapter 42, 45, and 49. This only serves to indicate, brothers and sisters, that the message revealed to Israel in the Old Testament 
through the prophets, always included salvation for all the nations. In other words, Paul is saying to the Jews, don't be surprised by the fact that we are now turning to the non-Jewish world. They will believe. But the human aspect in all of this is still very relevant. You must believe. You must not reject the word of God. For you will stand before a holy God, and you will give an account for what you did with the Lord Jesus. It is all absolutely true. You must respond to the gospel. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul is convinced that preaching the word, taking the message, and believing in it was absolutely necessary. Otherwise, why bother with missions at all? People must hear about Jesus and his salvation, and they must believe. But here's where the mystery comes in full display. While it is absolutely true that you and I must believe the message we hear, in verse 48, we are given the reason why anyone actually believes at all. The power behind faith. Let us delight ourselves in the next point, the beautiful tapestry, the beautiful tapestry. And what is that beautiful tapestry in verse 48? Divine predestination, divine predestination. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So clearly this interaction between Paul and the Jewish leaders did not happen in private. There were Gentiles, non-Jewish people listening to this. And the Bible says that when the Gentiles heard that salvation from the God of the Jews was equally available to them as to the Jews themselves, the Bible says they rejoiced and they glorified the word of the Lord. This is a worldview-changing moment for the Gentiles. What was thought of as being exclusively the possession of the Jewish nation, namely the Messiah, is now being taken to the ends of the earth. Anyone can believe. The God of the Jews... The true God of heavens, he desires to save people from every nation under the sun. Now, that statement is fairly clear, isn't it? The Gentiles, people from every nation, can be saved through faith in the Lord Jesus, the one who died on the cross and rose again. Therefore, obviously, the Gentiles rejoice. We can be saved. We, keep, we can be a part of the people of God through faith in the Messiah. But the next statement is startling in verse 48. It hits you like a ton of bricks. Now, the, the author of Acts could simply have said, the Gentiles rejoiced and many believed. But that is not what he said, however. He added an explanation as to why those Gentiles believed. In the second half of verse 48 says, and as many as were, what? Appointed to eternal life believed. I want to highlight five things here. First, notice the order in which Luke presents this. He doesn't say, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Rather, the order is this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life 
believed. The reason for believing is the appointment, not the other way around. You don't believe in order to get appointed to eternal life. You believe because you have been appointed to eternal life. The appointment is the cause, not the result, thus the order. Second, second thing I want to highlight. Notice the election explicitly taught in this verse. And as many as were appointed to eternal life. It doesn't say, and all were appointed to eternal life, but as many as were appointed. That there was an election of a specific group of people is clear, especially when you look at verse 50. Some of these who were hearing the message, they remained in unbelief and hatred. Clearly, not everyone believed there was an election. Number three, notice the effectuality of God's appointment. By effectuality, I mean when God appoints someone to eternal life, the results are effectually brought about. As Job learned after his tragic ordeal, truly no one can thwart God's plans. No one can thwart God's plans. Number four, consider the prerogative of the divine will. God is the one who appoints which means God is the one who ordains, who assigns what? Eternal life. What happened in verse 48 was by and because of the decree of God. And number five, notice the fruit of predestination. What resulted from it? One word, faith. Those whom God appointed to eternal life, those whom God chose or predestined for eternal life, believed. Once again, faith was the consequence of their appointment, not the cause of the appointment. How very interesting. Why is this statement here? Why did Luke see the need to clarify why the Gentiles believed? Here's the reason I think that statement is there. I believe it is there to remind us that there is always a beautiful tapestry hidden above and even in the midst of all the chaos in the world. And the beautiful tapestry is this. God always, God always accomplishes his eternal purposes no matter how chaotic life may seem. In other words, you know what the, pa the passage is about? We could summarize this entire passage with these words, behold your God. Behold your God. In this particular passage, we see opposition, we see confusion, reviling, persecution, commotion, etc. It was all very real. For Paul and Barnabas, these were real people, these were real buildings, real words, real persecution, real questions, real danger. It was all very real to them. But the Holy Spirit saw fit to insert this majestic statement in verse 48 to remind us that in the middle of all this ongoing commotion, which is so intrinsic, so natural to life in this world, in the middle of all these threads that don't always seem to make sense. There is a tapestry divine in nature that cannot be touched by human chaos, unbelief, or opposition. It is called predestination. 
It is rooted in the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, wise, and good counsel of God. And no man, no demon, and no circumstance can stop God. So let me make it personal. If you were to ask me, what has kept you in ministry after all the heartaches and the headaches for almost 20 years? Among other things, I could point to many other truths, but Acts 13, 48 would be at the top of the list. If you want to know what has kept me in the ministry personally for close to 20 years, it is the truth that God is God, expressed gloriously through the doctrine of predestination. In the middle of the chaos, uh, verse 48 provides the doctrine that stands behind all of life's circumstances, good and bad. The one doctrine that guarantees that all things do work together for good for those who love God. In predestination, we learn that the destiny of each human being has been pre-established, predetermined from all eternity. Not only in terms of individual salvation, but all circumstances as well. This was the conviction of the first Christians. Remember what they said in Acts chapter 4? As our early brothers and sisters met for worship in Acts 4, they said this in verse 27 and 28. Remember this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. There is no randomness in the economy of God, which is hard for us to understand because our lives here below in the underside of the tapestry look so full of contingencies. It looks and it feels random, but the Bible teaches that even the sufferings of Jesus down to the last detail were predestined to happen exactly as they did. And the salvation of the Gentiles in verse 48 was also predestined to take place exactly as it did, brothers and sisters. In our very contingent world, let us never fall for the mistake of assigning contingency to God. There is no contingency in God, no need for plan B, no unexpected events. God is absolute, self-determining, self-sufficient. He is the great I am. And the names of his people have been known to him from all eternity. The events of verse 48 were the outworking of a divinely decreed appointment. Thus, they were saved. So here's where we bring this, the great encouragement. The great encouragement. And what is the great encouragement? Gospel success. Gospel success. Verses 49 through 52. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What do we see here? We see both victory, joy, and God's abiding presence in the Holy Spirit alongside persecution, evil plotting, and hatred. A recipe for encouragement. Encouragement. It says that these Christians, in the middle of all that, they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, these early Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
could echo the words of Joseph to his brothers. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. And this, brothers and sisters, is always, always, always the case. How come? Well, the answer is this. God is sovereign. So Paul and Barnabas, having experienced the violent rejection of the Jewish leaders, they did not cry. Neither did they victimize themselves, saying, poor me. Instead, they shook off the dust and moved on. Let me make it personal again. It was the doctrine of God's sovereign predestination that led me to a similar conclusion as I stood there in front of those people during that meeting. It was at the most difficult and tense moment of that meeting that the Lord reminded me that his plans cannot be thwarted. And so even in the midst of such chaotic meeting, I was freed from any burden. In fact, someone who was in the meeting later commented, commented to me that I looked as cool as a lettuce. I don't even know what that means, but anyway. So I didn't cry or victimize myself on that day. Almost in a literal sense, I shook off the dust from my feet and I left. I left with a sense of gratitude because at that moment I was reminded of this wonderfully freeing truth. The church is God's and all things have been ordained by him, even that very moment. I am not in control, but praise God. He is. Now, some might say to me, what if you would have stayed and what if you would have fought the good fight? I suppose that is a legitimate question. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to live my life, my entire life, always within the realm of past contingencies. The what ifs of yesteryear. Why? Because as the hymn says, whatever my God ordains is right. So here are some practical takeaways. I'm going to give you three. There could have been so many more. In fact, as we were singing, I came up with like five more. But I'm not going to keep you here that long. We're going to stick to the notes. The practical takeaways. Some people say predestination is, is kind of a dead doctrine. Well, I, I disagree entirely. First of all, what we learn from this passage is this. Predestination is the engine of missions, not its enemy. Predestination is the engine of missions, not its enemy. I've heard this argument over and over again from those who are against the doctrine of predestination, and they say this, if predestination is true, why bother with missions? Which is interesting because this is one of the strongest statements on, on predestination in the entire Bible, and it's right in the middle of what? A highly missional passage. If predestination is true, why bother with missions? The elect will be saved anyway. I would like to challenge that assumption and turn it around. If predestination is not true, why do missions at all? I submit to you that Paul did missions because he believed in the sovereignty of God, not in the sovereignty of man. If predestination is not true, then your best hope of any success in the mission field is the human will, not God. 
You know what that is? That is a terrifying thought. Let it perish. At the end of the day, our confidence is in God, not men. So I ask, if predestination is not true, what's the alternative? What do you propose? The so-called free will of dead men? Some might say, and I've heard this recently actually, well, if predestination is true, then there is nothing I can do about this or that person's salvation because it has all been predestined by God and predetermined by God. That seems hopeless. Really? Really? Let me rephrase that argument. If predestination is true, then there is nothing I can do for this or that person's salvation because it is all in the hands of God. And how is that hopeless? What other hands could they be in? Their own? Their own hands? Perish that thought. Here is what you do. You pray for people's salvation. Why? It's a really simple answer. Because God is in charge of their salvation. That's why we pray. If he wasn't, why pray at all? Number two, correct? Or three? Two, okay. Say it was predestined for me to get confused. Predestination is the confirmation that Jesus died for somebody, not for nobody. Jesus entered this world to die for those given to him by the Father. And by the way, let me... As I make this point, let me just say that uh, it is not random that you are here. You're here for a reason. I don't care who you are, what your name is, how much money you have in the bank. You're here for a reason. And Jesus came and, and, and entered this world as a human being to save those given to him by the Father. After all, Jesus died for his bride. He died for his Church, so let me ask you, did Jesus die on the cross and hoped for the best? Or did he actually know for whom he died? Did Jesus, does Jesus know his bride? Let me see if I can push this down to the bottom line. Predestination teaches us that the marriage between Jesus and his church was an arranged marriage. The father chose the bride for his son, and the bride of Jesus included those Gentiles of Acts chapter 13, verse 48. They were appointed to eternal life, meaning they were appointed by eternal degree to be in union with Christ through faith. So Jesus then came, came, died for his bride with his own blood to save them from their sins. And one day his bride, the church, will be presented to him in full splendor without spot or wrinkle. And that, my friends, is the story of predestination. And here's the last one. Predestination is the guarantee that life is purposeful, not random. Is a guarantee that life is purposeful, not random. Those Gentiles 
of verse 48 were not randomly created or haphazardly thrown into existence. Amazingly, they were created for that very moment, predestined for it. They were knitted together in their mother's womb so that they would be at the right place to hear the right message in order to know God in Christ. And you know what? The same is true of you. The same is true of you. So take heart, my friend. Your life is not random. Your life is not random. It has been ordained. Everything about it has been ordained. And God is using all of it, your joys and your sorrows, for your good. But here's the last thing I want to say. The, only the eyes of faith can see this. Only the eyes of faith can see this. Only the eyes of faith can see beauty behind the destructive fire, the violent storm, the taxing relationships, the monotonous job, the decaying health, or the hostile persecution. How is that? Well, let's finish here. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and we will end here. Now, remember what I just said. Only the eyes of faith can see beauty behind the destructive fire, the violent storm, the taxing relationships, the monotonous job, the decaying health, or the hostile persecution, or whatever else might be. Why? Because of what the Bible says concerning faith. Hebrews 11.1 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not what? Seen. Not seen. Let me ask one question about this passage. What is it that faith is convinced of but cannot see? What is it that faith is convinced of but cannot see? Here's the answer. The tapestry. The tapestry. We only see the underside. But above it, above the chaos, there's a beautiful tapestry, divinely designed, at times hidden from our eyes, but never hidden from the eyes of faith. And that tapestry we call the conviction that God is God and that Christ is Lord. Upon this we stand and under this we live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time of meditation upon your word. We thank you for the truths that we have considered. And I pray that you will take this message including the, the shortcomings on my part, so that everyone in this room will make much of you, not of us. For at the end of the day, we know that life is about you. We were created for you and for your glory. And so, Father, there is nothing we can do to apply these things to our own hearts, but this is the work of you and your Spirit. And so now we lift these things up to you and we pray that you will do with them what your will has ordained. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, your son. Amen.